You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian Geopolitics. As usual, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, and we're back this week with Prashant Parmeswaran. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. It's uh, good to have you back from China, where you were recently, I believe, at the Xiangshan Forum. Um, so, Prashant, I actually want to start this podcast by just reflecting a bit on Xiangshan before we move on to our broader discussion on Thailand, since we obviously have big news out of that country with the king's death. Um, but first, you know, I wanted to get your impressions of this conference. So for listeners who aren't aware, China has been hosting the Xiangshan Forum for a few years now as sort of its version of the Shangri-La Dialogue, essentially an opportunity for Beijing to convene a range of senior officials, think tankers, journalists um, in, you know, under under a Chinese roof to talk about issues of global governance, um, regional security architecture, uh, very much like what the Shangri-La Dialogue aspires to do every year in Singapore. So Prashant, what were your overall impressions of this conference? Yeah, I think um, so. The Xiangshan Forum, I think, is, is is often, as you pointed out, seen as uh, the rising competitor to more established forums like the Shangri-La Dialogue uh, in Singapore. So I, I managed to attend uh, Shangri-La this year, um, as well as the Asia Pacific Roundtable in in Malaysia, which is sort of another uh, major forum. And I think you know that you you can comparing these, you can see. Uh, some similarities and some clear differences. So one thing is you attend these forums and you notice that the official topics on the agenda are actually fairly similar, right? Whether it's visions for the region's security architecture, maritime security, terrorism, non-traditional security challenges, these are sort of the big ticket issues in terms of the agenda. But, you know, uh, the more interesting parts of the forum are actually, you know, either the informal discussions among the participants, um, or the the separate smaller roundtables that they have, where people can have more frank and, and honest views. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this year at Xiangshan, uh, a lot of those conversations, unsurprisingly, you know, centered around the stuff that you know we we write about a lot and we talk about a lot in the podcast. So, the future of U.S. Asia policy, uh, including you know speculations about what that might be like in the unlikely event of a victory by Donald Trump. <laughs> um, you know, regional trends like the South China Sea, um, because we've seen a, a very interesting uh, developments there in terms of the ASEAN China front, mm-hmm. um, in terms of efforts to, to lower the temperature. So there were discussions about that as well. And then also uh, a lot of discussion about the Philippines under Duterte, because the forum took place just a week ahead of his trip to China, which both you and I have been writing about. Um, and so a lot of discussions there, but also um, this was taking place as uh, Philippine and, and Chinese um, scholars and experts were having discussions on the sidelines of the meeting as well about what to expect and, and what the two governments should hope to do and accomplish ahead of the visit. So that was another interesting takeaway point. But um, the, the major point, is, as you pointed out, um, and I wrote about uh, yesterday, was this idea of China's new proposals for uh, the regional security architecture, right. and um, the the vice foreign minister uh, delivered uh, an address about that. Um, I think among the participants discussing it later, um, I mean there wasn't a whole lot of detail to be honest. It seemed like it, it was more of a start of a conversation, and he in fact encouraged us at the conference to talk more about it. Um, but I think that there was kind of mixed feelings about it. I think on the one hand, um, people are increasingly looking. Uh, at China as not only a country that's providing for the region's prosperity, but also its security in terms of a number of fronts, right? So the Mekong patrols, for example, which are now in its 50th iteration, China's been playing up its role there and looking to sort of 
uh, see itself as a security provider, even as it's the cause of many of the region's security challenges, including the South China Sea. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of the rhetoric on uh, on China's role in the region's security infrastructure architecture uh, comes with uh, a lot of um, either overt or subtle uh, sort of anti-U.S. anti-U.S. alliance partnership rhetoric. And I think that makes uh, Southeast Asian countries in particular quite uncomfortable. And I think China is facing issues with how it reconciles what it wants to say with, with what it's doing and what the region is, is thinking about what it's saying and doing. So that's kind of an evolving process that we see. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely another interesting sign of China taking a more active role in um, making the rules and offering itself up as a provider of public goods. Since it's actually been using that language quite a bit to even you know justify its island building and activities in the South China Sea, um, it's it's interesting how you know Beijing uses that language as a veneer. And you know you did bring up Duterte again, and I really want to emphasize to our listeners. I know we've been leading you on with all this talk of Duterte, but we haven't really done a full episode on the latest bout of recalibration of the alliance and his visit to. China. Actually, as we're recording this podcast uh, today on Wednesday, October 19th, uh, Duterte is in China. So um, I promise you the next episode will be looking at Duterte and uh, some of the developments that have gone on there since we did our last episode on the Philippines. Um, all right, but let's uh, shift gears now to Thailand, which I really want to focus on for the duration of this podcast. Um, so, Prashant, while you were in China, obviously huge news came out of Thailand. Not entirely surprising news. It's something that observers of the country for a while have essentially expected as an assured political event. Uh, king Bumibol Adulyadesh, uh, the 88-year-old king, the world's longest reigning monarch, um, died last week uh, in uh, Bangkok uh, at his hospital where he'd been living for a few years. The event is really... Um, quite significant in the context of Thailand, which is a country riven by a variety of political differences, and the monarchy had historically been seen as a sign of stability. I'll uh, let you talk a bit more about the role of the monarchy in Thailand and why it's such a unique institution. Um, But essentially, just to offer our listeners a little bit of context, if they're not entirely familiar with what's been going on in Thailand. So in 2014, the uh, democratically elected government of uh, Yingluck Shinawat was overthrown by um, a military coup led by Prayut Chanocha, uh, who was then a general. Now he's the prime minister and leader of the National Council on Peace and Order, which is essentially the military junta running the country. Um, the king and the military, uh, I should say the monarchy and the military have historically been closely intertwined in Thailand. Essentially, the military has seen itself as a provider of stability in the country, uh, sort of similar to how the military conceived of its role in Kamalist Turkey, but uh, I don't want to get too much into that analogy right now. Um, so essentially, after the king's death, um, we've seen a little bit of a, um, um, you know, there was always a question about what would happen after the king died, and essentially it seems like um, while the crown prince, uh, who we'll talk about a bit later in the podcast, uh, Mahavajira Longkorn, isn't quite as popular as his father was and is perceived as a bit of an international playboy, has been announced to essentially step up as um, as the next king in about a year's time. It appears in the, me- in the meantime, Prem uh, Tina Suladon, uh, who is the president of the Privy Council and a previous prime minister of Thailand is taking over as regent. So that's essentially the situation on the ground. And now hopefully we can get a bit more into the analytical conversation here, Prashant. Um, so Prashant, you, um, you know, as a close analyst of Southeast Asia and of uh, Thailand, uh, do you want to tell us a bit about, you know, the broader role of the monarchy in, in Thai politics and society and why this is such a significant event? Sure. You know, I think institutionally, um, if you look at it from, from a historical perspective, the centrality of, of the monarchy um, in Thai history is actually fairly recent uh, by, sta- by Thai, Thai standards. Um, 
since about around the 1960s, 1970s, that's sort of when we, we saw the real increased prominence of the monarchy, and that's based largely around the fact that the monarchy was kind of a, a stabilizing force in holding the country together when there were uh, lots of forces that were dividing it in the midst of the Cold War, right? So yeah, uh, domestic insurgency, uh, the country was still not very developed, and you had regional tensions as well with, with uh, in mainland Southeast Asia with the Vietnam War um, and the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia. Uh, um, I th think more recently he's been seen also as a stabilizing force um, amidst political divisions in Thailand, right, over the, the past decade or so. Yeah, so I think more recently the, the monarchy has been seen as uh, kind of a stabilizing force amid increasing political divisions in Thailand. Um, over the past 15 years or so. Um, but even so, the influence that the king has exercised has actually declined, and that's due to various factors, including the intensity of those political divisions, which, which have only uh, increased over time. So talk a bit about, about those divisions, because I think you know they're absolutely central to understanding what's been happening in Thailand over the past two years. Sure. I, I think uh, the, if you were to give a one-sentence summary uh, about those divisions, it would be sort of the the increasing divisions, the attempt to reconcile the changes in Thai society uh, with the increasing uh, fracture, uh, fractures that we see in the political landscape, right? So society-wise, um, we're seeing increased trends with respect to the rural versus the urban divide. Um, we're seeing uh, particularly with the election of Thaksin Shinawatra, um, sort of a, considered a populist leader, um, tensions emerging between uh, supporters in places like the north and northeast of the country um, versus um, some of the traditional Thai elite, right? And Thaksin was seen as a widely divisive figure, and that's and his ouster subsequently in a previous coup uh, before this 2014 one. Um, had actually seen uh, divisions in the country over the future of the of Thai politics, right, between the elite versus this new sort of coalition that has merged. So essentially what you're seeing is uh, an attempt for Thailand to come to grips with how to reconcile these changes that they're seeing in society with how that's playing out in terms of its politics. And part of that is the balance and the stability that traditionally has been struck between these various institutions that form part of the Thai elite. So that includes the military, to a certain extent the private sector, and the monarchy. And I think one thing to keep in mind that's really important when analyzing the Thai king um, and the monarchy is that it really isn't just about the Thai king. I mean, the monarchy for decades has exercised its influence through actually a, a very complex network uh, that includes, uh, I think you noted some of this in the piece that you wrote as well, um, it includes the Privy Council, uh, some of which whose members, uh, including Prem that you mentioned, are actually quite old themselves. Um, and there's the Crown Property Bureau, there's a variety of institutions here. And I think that plays into what we might expect, which I think we'll talk about more, because we have to pay attention to not only the succession, but also how these various institutions uh, balance themselves and play out over the next few years. Right. Yeah. Essentially, you know, um, this is a story of the elites essentially losing power. I mean, uh, the story of Thai politics over the last 15 years with the rise of Thaksin 
and um, the broader, you know, military uh, crown nexus that we've seen emerge um, over the past two years, especially. So um, I guess the succession, I mean, you know, it's remarkable. Um, I forgot to note this, but, you know, with his 70 year reign, essentially, uh, Bhumibol's reign was essentially longer than the average Thai's life expectancy for for most uh, Thai citizens. He's been pretty much a constant in the country's politics as they've known it um, throughout history. So really, um, you know, he's he's essentially revered as a, demi, uh, as a demigod. So his departure from the scene, um, I don't know if our listeners saw, but we had a, a striking photo essay at The Diplomat with a scenes of Ty's mourning uh, outside the hospital where Bumipol died right um, as the news was announced. So really, this is a... Um, an incredibly emotional moment for the whole country. Um, so let's talk a bit about his uh, successor, the Crown Prince, uh, since he's an interesting character. Um, so the Crown Prince himself is actually fairly old. I believe he's in his 60s, um, but he's seen a bit as um, an international playboy um, exercising. You know, he essentially lives life um, some would say not with the usual dignity that a, a royal figure might choose to practice. Um, I'll, I'll leave it that way. There's a lot of images that you can look for on the internet of his antics in the past. Um, but uh, essentially, he's an interesting character because there's also allegations that he actually has uh, certain sympathies and connections uh, to the Tuxin camp, which uh, naturally makes the military junta uncomfortable. Um, so Prashant, what's your uh, perception of the crown prince who's uh, slated to essentially take over the crown in a year? Yeah, I think a couple of things to keep in mind. I think the first thing is uh, the the the, mo the more obvious point is that he doesn't enjoy any near the kind of legitimacy that King Bhumipol uh, did. Um, a lot of the goodwill that the king, uh, the late king, now accumulated, had to do with the fact that not only was he was he this figure uh, when Thailand was going through this period during the Cold War, but he actually engaged himself in a lot of development projects, a lot of extensive travel to even the most rural parts of the country, um, and accumulated goodwill really by interacting with the people. Um, the crown prince, uh, by contrast, um, is someone who, as you, as you correctly mentioned earlier, is considered, um, doesn't have the same temperament as the late king, uh, has engaged in various uh, scandals and shenanigans uh, that have, uh, you know, that have been uh, making the headlines for, for years now. And that has created a lot of uncertainty, in fact, about whether he should, in fact, be the successor, uh, even though I, you know, like to emphasize that the succession scenarios, in spite of the speculation that often goes on about these, the succession scenarios are actually fairly detailed, they're well laid out, and since they are so central to the stability of the country um, and its politics, um, I would not expect uh, the country so easily to divert or depart uh, from mm -hmm. those scenarios. I think the, the the more interesting thing is to see, I mean, you correctly mentioned um, this idea of his connection to Thai politics and also Thaksin, um, because the the key thing to watch, even as we see him and, and assuming that he is crowned, um, will be to see how he makes decisions with respect to who he's going to appoint in his privy council, who's going to form the close network of his advisors, because he has a chance to make a number of new appointments in these various uh, networks that comprise uh, the sort of quote-unquote network monarchy, right, that surrounds right. him. But also, the, the, the second point is, um, you know, will there be, uh, what will his attitude be towards Tuxin and the uh, Pew Thai uh, party? 
uh, Tuxen's party, essentially. So uh, will there be some sort of royal pardon? Uh, will there be a, a return to uh, Tuxen's party in Thai politics in terms of the prominence that it, it plays? Because uh, there are people in the Thai elite, including in the military, um, as well as the bureaucracy, that uh, frown upon uh, a central role for Thaksin and his related parties in, in, in the political landscape. So um, the extent to which uh, the king departs, the, the, the next king departs uh, from this uh, will, will be interesting to watch. Yeah, and I think it's, um, and, you know, I think it's interesting more broadly to observe some of the, um, you know, the fissures that have actually emerged between the military and the yellow camp, the yellow camp uh, being shorthand for a Thai monarchist, yellow being the king's favorite, the late king's favorite color, essentially identifying ultra monarchists. So what I understand is that a lot of these ultra monarchists are essentially in, uh, or were in favor of uh, Princess uh, Sirindorn, who is um, mm-hmm. essentially yep. a, a far more popular um offspring of the late king um she's also similarly in her early 60s um a lot more popular than her brother uh the crown prince who's now slated to take over so that's actually put the military in a tough position because the military's actually made quite a few inroads with the crown prince essentially um you know ruling out any sort of alternative succession plan as you noted so you know i wonder uh if this actually lays the groundwork for an additional fault line to emerge in thailand i mean you have the classic reds versus yellows fault line but usually the military and the monarchists have um, maintained a degree of unity and now with this uh, with the succession coming on, Thailand having elections next year under its new constitution, it seems like there's a lot of ways that uh, Thai politics are really kind of teetering on some pretty thin ice right now. What do you think of all that? Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, those are all uh, you know valid concerns. I, I think until we see not only the crowning of, of the new king, uh, but also the composition of, of his new network of advisors, um, and the institutions that are close to the monarchy, it's very difficult to say that Thailand has returned to a state of political stability. There are a lot of variables here. Um, you know, one of them is uh, the fact that uh, the Thai junta, who uh, took over in a, in a coup, um, they have been already quite reluctant to relinquish uh, power and authority uh, to return to a fully democratized country. And so it would be interesting to see how the succession scenarios play into their calculations about things like when they want to hold um, elections, when they want to uh, hand over a transition to a fully democratic government, and what role they will play even after uh, a new government uh, comes to power. Because uh, depending on how the succession scenario plays out, um, they could either see uh, more stability in Thailand and so they would be more willing to be relaxed or they could see more instability um, right. and, and they, they, they could be they could continue to exercise uh, strict control and understand you know that not only has consequences for Thailand domestically but also in terms of its international relationships particularly with Western countries right. which, which continue to call for Thailand to return uh, to a fully uh, de- democratized state but also you know, going back to the point that I illustrated earlier, if we see some kind of uh, future delay in terms of the elections and a return to political normalcy, you know, that only uh, suggests that uh, the Thai elite and particularly the Thai military is trying to prolong the much needed realignment that we need to see between Thai politics and Thai society. And, you know, that cannot occur by continuing to suppress the popular will of the Thai people. I mean, there may be a case for managing that popular will so we don't see protracted protests as we've seen in recent years in Thailand. 
Um, but you know, trying to re-engineer rules as the Thai military has done with respect to the new constitution, and trying to sort of uh, play into certain coalitions that might be in its favor, I think will only prolong uh, these issues that we're seeing and will only compound the problems that we're seeing in Thailand the short to medium term. Yeah, I mean, that fundamental fissure of essentially Bangkok elites versus the rest of the country really doesn't seem to be going away. You know, I mean, I think it's, you know, there's um, a really interesting question here of how much of this succession with uh, Prem taking over for a year, which is actually going to cover the period of next year's elections and then leading to the crown princes actually accepting the crown um, or being coronated um, is is particularly interesting since, you know, Prem, uh, as you noted, you know, he was even older than King Bumipol. He's in his 90s now. He's definitely part of the uh, Bangkok elite old guard as a former president. Prime Minister as well, definitely has a good rapport with uh, Prayut. So I wonder, you know, how much, um, you know, you read reports in the, the days leading up to the late King's death that um, the Crown Prince, um, Prem and Prayut were meeting, uh, discussing things. So clearly it seemed to be, uh, to me at least, that this was all very telegraphed. Uh, having Prem uh, stand in at the top of the Privy Council and serve as regent for this next one year, which is actually a crucial period, it seems, going up to the next elections, uh, could actually serve um, to build in a little bit of stability yeah absolutely and i think you you you, pro- you probably will see some kind of negotiated process where uh prem uh and those advisors who were close to the late king um will sort of try to work out some arrangement uh, with the new king uh and possibly his new advisors as well about what the what the future of the monarchy might might look like in terms of uh its composition but also the balance among uh, various forces, because I think while while the new king uh, might certainly want to make his own changes, um, I think the point that uh, people in, in, in the established elite will make is that there is really a lot at stake here. This is a, a very sort of uh, trying time for Thailand, a very sensitive time. Um, and so how those negotiations play out uh, in the next few months uh, will be interesting to watch. Absolutely. Well, uh, Prashant, it's good to have you back in the United States for these podcasts. And um, like we said, we'll be back soon with something on Duterte, right? Yep. Sounds good. Great. Yeah. Um, Well, thanks always for uh, listening to the podcast. And if you liked what you heard, do leave us a review and a rating on iTunes. That really helps the show grow in terms of our listenership. And um, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss our future episodes. Thanks for listening.